This is the Creativity Podcast, episode 14. Adrienne, and this is Creativity. This is actually number 14. And I'm Harlan. Hi, Adrienne. Hi, everyone. And thanks for tuning into our podcast. That was quite an interesting track we played there, Harlan. Why that one in particular? It's lovely, isn't it? It's so jaunty and so much fun. Uh It's called Seaside Cafe by Peritune. Okay. And why that particular track? It's not the track that we were hoping or planning to play. We wanted to play a ukulele track by our special guest today, but there are issues of copyright prohibit us from playing it. Not by our special guest prohibiting it, but by the laws of copyright. Okay, can you just precede those laws for us just very quickly? Because I think a lot of people out there are a bit confused by it. So am I. But <laughs> the track we've just played by Peritune is called a royalty-free track, so they have created that track for other people to use in any reasonable way that they choose to use it. Now, if we put it on TV with an advert or butter, Mm -hmm. for example, then they would expect payment. But in the way we're using it, and as long as we acknowledge that it's by Eritune, and that was Seaside Cafe, then all is well. However, some of the tracks by our special guests today playing ukulele in a ukulele band are not royalty free. Aha. Uh-huh. So if we use them and we broadcast them, then we would, strictly speaking, be breaking various laws. And we don't want to do that, do we, Adrienne? We absolutely do not. And I didn't know that that was even possible, Harlan. What is possible to break the law? <laughs> <laughs> I do it all the time, dear. I know, you're a devil, aren't you? <laughs> But also there's a a bigger point. You're Mm -hmm. a musician, I'm a musician, you're a writer, I'm a writer. And out of respect for people's creativity, we want to, number one, acknowledge who has done a particular track. And if there is a monetization element, Mm -hmm. which there isn't in this case, then we want to make sure that they receive new reward. Yes, and it's not a nice feeling to know that somebody has actually nicked something that was yours. A, you know, a riff or a, a piece of writing. It's, you know, you'd think, well, hang on a minute. It would have been nice to have asked. I wouldn't have said no, but, you know, sort of politeness sort of thing. It's interesting the way rap music has actually pioneered a lot of this because rap music is full of oh. riffs and lifts from other people's songs. But the music industry has become very adept at spotting a tiny little snippet from an original record, which is now being used in a new song. And there have been some quite high-profile court cases about that, about plagiarism, which is Mm. so easy because you've got something in your head and you've forgotten it and it's in your music. Who's to say? But there was a track by the Rolling Stones, which was sampled by the Verve, Bittersweet Symphony, years ago. Mm -hmm. And the Rolling Stones 
to the Verve's management to court and actually won the case and then said, okay, guys, well, you can have it. All you had to do was ask. So there was no, <laughs> that, as far as I know, there was no money changed hands in, in that no. particular instance. So do you think it's time to introduce our honoured guest yet, Harlan? Well, she's waiting very patiently. So, yes, I think it's, I think it's time to say Let's hi. Let's do it. Well, our honoured guest today is Christine Cohen-Park. And I have a list of her achievements in front of me, which I'll read to you. Christine is a novelist, freelance writer, facilitator of shared reading groups, and a former tutor on the University of Sussex MA in writing and personal development. She's written three published novels, Joining the Grown-Ups, The House Husband, and A Key to Lockout Cougars. And she's co-edited the prize-winning collection of short stories, Close Company, which is published by Virago. She's also just completed a fourth novel set in Israel and Palestine, Bye Bye Apartheid Road. So, welcome, Christine Cohen-Park. Hello, Christine. Very nice to meet you, and thanks for joining us on Creativity. Very nice to meet you, too. Mm -hmm. Let's jump straight in with your new novel, Bye Bye Apartheid Road. Yes. I'm interested in what's going on for you with that novel, given the current situation in Gaza. Yes. Has it changed your view of the novel and what you're saying in it? Well, what I was trying to do in the novel was write a fiction that was even-handed, or as even-handed as anyone can possibly be. And ironically, horrifically, I finished the novel exactly a week before the Hamas attacks. In, mm. on October the 7th. What I think is that, in many ways, it's a more urgent novel than ever before, mm. because what it does is it gives a background to why things are happening as they are on both sides, if you like. Mm -hmm. And yet, it's a big three-generational saga, so it's an emotional, personal story in itself. Mm -hmm. But where it's set means that while you're reading this hopefully gripping story, this background, this sort of understanding from both perspectives underpins it, really. Mm -hmm. So I think it is the time for it, if ever there was one. Would you say that you've managed to remain even-handed now that things have transpired the way they have? Well, the first thing I was going to say, which isn't a direct answer to your question, which is that, just answering the question before, is that has it changed anything, you asked, or would I have wished that I would have written it differently? I would say no, but at the same time, I would say that there was a certain haunting but hopeful optimism in the book, and you very much feel we're in a new, though an old, but also a new situation now. So when the war started in Ukraine... I, like other people, was busy reading a book called Grey Bees, and mm -hmm. that was set in the previous sort of Russian-Italian war in 2014. So I was reading it in the middle of last year when the situation was a new one, but still, nevertheless, you knew that the writer didn't have the prescience to understand what was happening now, mm -hmm. how could one, but mm. what he was saying about 2014, because much is the same, informed it. So I would say that 
if I were writing it now, this would be a hard time, particularly now, let's say this week, to hold on to the kind of optimism mm. that haunts the book. And I say haunts advisedly in a way, because haunts it in the sense that it's always so, so tentative. Yeah. It's always circled around by the sadness, the horror, the experiences that people have. But at least it's there. Mm. This is a very, very hard time to conjure up optimism. You'd have to be a hugely optimistic person. I was just going to say, I quite like Gable Maté as a very balanced, even-handed person, he gave the perfect phrase for this. He said, this is not a binary situation. you holding the two things yes. at the same level. You can't go any one direction without yes. something not feeling right somehow. Yeah, I agree with you. And I love a quote from the French teacher who's going to speak at the Holocaust Memorial um, oh, yes. in Lewis, who said, this is a time when we need more Israeli Gandhis and more Palestinian Mandelas. <laughs> I love that. Given your knowledge, your background, your understanding of the situation in Gaza, could you have ever foreseen what came on the 7th of October 2023? Not really in that totally horrific, um, unbelievable, which is an answer in itself, form of the attack only that you only have to be there in Palestine on the West Bank for long enough to understand, I mean, a bit like living in South Africa, sorry to bring up the comparison, but I lived there for five years as a kid and I knew that the adults were aware that something was boiling, boiling, boiling yeah. that would have to come to some sort of a point that black South Africa just couldn't go on forever accepting it. And I know that my mother and her friends and all the people who came to the house were absolutely convinced that it would end in bloodshed. And in a way, it's a miracle that something that so many people thought would end in bloodshed didn't. But that boiling sense, you know, like a kettle boiling, like resentment and terrible things would happen, not what. Right. I sort of feel I've said what I can, really. We jumped straight in at the deep end there, Christine. Yeah, we did. You know, I'm grateful that you asked me. And I'm at this moment sending out the manuscript to agents, but I've got eight really brilliant, so this is a bit of a plug, eight brilliant advanced endorsements. And, you know, I'm very, very hopeful that an agent and a publisher will have the courage to publish at this time. I think views are divided. I mean, some people suspect that this may not be its time because mm. we're in it and we're in this situation and that people perhaps only want news and nonfiction and can't cope with the novel and mm. that I'll have to wait a bit. And an equal number of people feel, no, no, you know, this is the time and run with it and someone will have the courage and pick it up. And what I do know is if they do, because half of it's told from a Palestinian perspective and half of it's told from an Israeli perspective, that no one could read the whole thing without feeling that I have embraced the situation in a way that's as fair as anyone can be. Yeah, thank you. Rewind us to... You, as a younger person, when did you start feeling, you know what, I'm, I'm a writer, I'm going to be a writer? <laughs> mm -hmm. 
Well, in my 20s, I was married. And sadly, five years later, I was divorced. And at that point, my flat was too large, but I loved it. So I rented out two rooms to two arty kind of men. I had a daughter, a young daughter. And the two arty men and I and my daughter had a great time. And basically, I went and saw a lot of art with the artists. And the irony is that I was a businesswoman at the time. I was just doing what I could, you know, Mm -hmm. with a young daughter at home and things. And I was running a business called House Hunt in London. And then these artists were doing kind of really wonderful things. (laughs) And I was running this business. And one day I was invited to talk by the Rotary Club in Paddington. And when I came back, I had this terrible feeling, my God, you know, I'm only in my 20s. I'm talking at the Rotary Club. What is my life going to be? (laughs) I have to see if I can break out and do something else. But I didn't have a background in art or music. But my father was a politician and a great orator. And my mother was a great reader. And so it was sort of natural to me that once I thought about moving into the arts, I went to the most familiar, the most likely. And for some years, I actually kept on having to work in a business capacity, but wrote poems. Mm -hmm. Uh, And eventually I moved from poems to the novels. So I wrote a novel, I think in my 30s, that was short. It was more or less a novella, Mm -hmm. but it was sort of full of life. And of course, things were easier then in the publishing industry, less competitive. So I sent it out and got lots of lovely feedback from publishers saying, you know, this has got a quality and it's got a life, but it's not substantial enough. Send me your next one. Mm -hmm. And I had no idea what they meant by substantial. So the next one, I threw everything at it, like the whole kitchen. And finally, you know, I sent it to an agent who I'd found on the first book. And she said to me, Christine, this is the most boring book I've had the misfortune (laughs) to read in all my years as an agent. (laughs) I was absolutely (laughs) horrified. And my daughter was by then a teenager I was working and writing and trying to bring her up. And it was quite a sort of tough discipline, really, I'd say. And so she said to me, Mum, don't you think with a comment like that, you should give up now? You should have more of a life. And I said, yes, I'm sure you're right. I felt absolutely awful. But a few months later, involuntarily, really, I, I sort of started writing the third novel, which was the first published one, if you like. Mm-hmm. I knew that if you go on doing something long enough and you know that you're getting better, Mm. that you'll get published. And I thought even if I was like the age I am now, 81, I'd get there because I was getting better. And I kind of learned something about the technique and something about not needing to throw absolutely everything you've ever thought or felt into a novel. (laughs) So that one was the first to get published. And uh, it was sort of a brilliant and easy experience, really. Which novel was that? So that was Joining the Grown Ups. I love that title. You know, that was such an opposite experience. So by then I was a bit more savvy in those times. And I made a list of agents, literary agents, with the one that I most wanted at the top. Probably nothing's ever been so good since, and it's really quite funny. Because I sort of dropped it round, the manuscript, of course, at his agency in Islington. 
And I thought, well, give it two, three weeks. And I dropped it on a Friday night. And on the Sunday evening, he phoned me to say, you know, he'd read it and that I must be a frightfully busy woman, which I quickly said I was, though I wasn't. And was there any day the next week he could take me out for a champagne lunch? Oh, Yes, and he said, it isn't a question of which publisher, which one chooses us. It's a question of which one we decide to go for. Wonderful position to be in, isn't it? And then I was so thrilled that I ran upstairs to tell my daughter. And I think that my energy after all these years, 10 years of being a sort of novice writer, was such that she flew into the bathroom and locked the door because I think I must have been looking so emotional. (laughs) But when we found a publisher, where he did, she took the call. So I was actually down in Brighton. So I remember getting on a train and getting back to London, getting to the house, and she and I walked out up the road to kind of have a drink. And she linked her arm around mine and she said, well, mum, it was worth waiting. And now, pause, what shall we spend the money on? (laughs) It's truly supportive. Yes, yes. So she has faith in you now as a writer. (laughs) (laughs) God knows what she thinks now. Because, as we'll come to, you know, I've had a huge dip in... I haven't had a straightforward publishing career. I think she does have faith in me. She herself is a film producer. You know, sometimes she thinks, poor old mum, I've left her behind. But I think she probably does have faith in me, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you just mentioned a dip. Can you tell us about the dip now? Yeah. Yes. Well, then after that, you know, the reviews were super, the first one. I fairly quickly wrote a second one. And they often say that the second novel is the underbelly of the first. And I found that to be very true, not only with myself, but when I think of others' novels. And what I mean by that is that writing is so much about developing a technique. And so in your first novel, whoever you are, you can only bring in a certain amount of yourself because your writing can't, it doesn't allow you to do more. And often the success of the first novel is by being able to understand that. And the second novel is very often, if you look at people's work, what hasn't been expressed. Mm. And possibly also that's why it's not so successful in a way, but interesting, because what's coming out then is different moods, different feelings, even different voices that are equally important to the rounded person that's you, but you're trying to get at, get a bit more in the net, mm. which I think with each novel you try and do in a certain way. So I wrote a second novel, which was a more lyrical novel, a sort of slower, beautiful, lyrical novel, mostly set on Hampstead Heath. And my publishing contract had the advance for the second novel. So when I'd finished it, my agent came to lunch once he'd read it. And I knew that was a bad sign. And he was a very good agent, very wise about human nature. And he came in and said, I've got a terrible stomachache today, Christine, so you are going to be gentle with me. And I knew then, you know, that he was going to say something terrible and that I was going to have to mother him. (laughs) So he he alerted me. That's probably what he did with his class. But anyway, what he said to me was that it wouldn't work to send it to the publisher and that... He looked around the room and he looked at the plants that needed dusting and he sort of said something which implied to me that I I needed a bit of dusting, you know. And he said, (laughs) you 
you need a holiday, you know, before you do a rewrite. And and I felt tired. I felt that it had been hard being in publishing myself part-time, bringing up Nara in a city life and a teenage daughter and all the hours when, you know, I was having to be away. And I did feel tired. And she was just finishing school, going off and, and doing her own thing. And he said that thing about a rest. So I thought that I would go to British Columbia, where my closest woman friend had gone and was now married and living in British Columbia, and rent a apartment with money from the first advance in Vancouver and do the rewrites. But the week after I got there, my friend was going to this a remote island um, in British Columbia, 100 miles from Vancouver, and she begged me to go with her for a week. And I said, no, 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 you know, I have the English work ethic. No, 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 I'm a straight get on with the rewrites. But she said, well, come for a week, come for a week. It's really important. So I went for a week and long and short, I spent the best part of the next 10 years there. And it had a huge influence on my life. Right. And I rewrote the second novel and that was published here. And I think being there gave it its vim and vigor. I found out a way how to do it, absolutely. But once I moved there and had the opportunity to teach in Vancouver, and once I moved there, I had this idea that I was going to write. Neither of these novels, they're very well reviewed. They were English novels, Mm -hmm. and neither of them got an American publisher. Yeah. So I told myself that by the time Nara was 22, over the next years I came and went and taught some semesters in Canada. So what if I go over there full time and for a bit and I'll write the great third novel? (laughs) But when I got there, so much happened to me, really. I sort of exploded from this rather curtailed and disciplined and even boring, because I was trying to be a good mother and father to Nara, if you like, mm. this kind of constrained life where writing was in a routine and things. Suddenly, the world was my oyster. And I gave hundreds of workshops. I had my ears pierced and I wore gorgeous earrings. <laughs> I um, traveled around BC giving workshops. I taught my courses on the island. I sort of learnt to survive and to fish off tippy kayaks and chop wood. And I had a sort of wonderful inner explosion and intellectual development. And I want to say something about that because I think I was a very constrained English person and a city person. You know, I was used to my high heel boots and my briefcase and all these things. Mm-hmm. And I was now in my early 40s, but I really did think that we thought with our minds. Mm. And it was in Canada that I realised, talking about creativity, that it was like my body came alive and I realised that we think with our bodies equally. And all my senses came alive. And I realised that we understood not just through our minds. And my whole cognitive straitjacket, you know, as if I'd grown up thinking, you go to university, you read books, you understand the world. I began to understand 
And some of it comes from deep experiences in the wilderness. And some of it came from all the workshops that were available. On the island, there was an institute that, that I taught in every summer. And they gave a great variety of workshops in the arts and in, in ecology. But I learned from all these workshops to kind of develop my own writing workshop, which was writing and creativity. And so I took all these wonderful exercises and did them myself and experienced all these things. And I felt this explosion of my personality, mm. but I couldn't find a voice for that new person I was becoming. One is that I could no longer write for my English social awareness audience, if you like, mm -hmm. make those little quirks and make those little observations. But I couldn't become North American either. I just couldn't do it. Partly, I think I didn't want to move too far from Nara's consciousness, my daughter, who didn't come with me because she was at the age of mm. you know, wanting to stay here. And I couldn't turn my back on England. I could not find a new voice mm -hmm. for myself. And God, I tried. You know, I never stopped writing. <laughs> Even though, you know, I was doing all this teaching and all these workshops and things, hundreds and hundreds of workshops. I didn't want to be a professional workshop leader only. Mm. No, I absolutely didn't. I went around with this book, which was like, I suppose a cook would have a book of menus. I had this book of workshop exercises, which <laughs> got bigger and bigger. It was a great tome yeah. you know, that I took around. And, you know, I love doing these things. I love getting people to use their unconscious in completely different ways. But it wasn't being quite true to myself, there was the calling to be a writer and I couldn't find the way and I, and I suffered as the years went by. And I wrote a book about the island, about a group of, I suppose you'd say green Latter-day activists who were trying to live a life in tune with nature mm -hmm. and the conflict between them and the escalation on the island that I saw of the market economy, easier travel, tourism, and so on and so forth, and this, this battle which goes on. And I thought that the island was a little microcosm. So I wrote the third book called A Key to Lockout Cougars, and that was sort of partly supported by the Islands Museum and Archive Society, and it was sort of published with liaison with them. Mm -hmm. But English publishers weren't interested in it, and I think it was too specific to the island or, or whatever. Mm. So I wrote that book, but still nothing until I moved back to England when my daughter married and she wanted me to be here for my grandchildren and lots of family things drew me back. And I was with a guy who planned to come back with me that didn't work out. But gradually, over quite a long time and quite a lot of heartbreak, this voice that accommodated the me I'd become, I never say new because we're all new and old, rounded it out with the old voice. And they came together really when I started writing this book. I mean, in the interim, I'd written, you know, some short stories and some mm -hmm. prose pieces and some academic pieces. So I kept writing. 
But it was really, in terms of a longer fiction, it's really been this last 10 years with going to Israel and Palestine, West Bank, writing articles about those experiences. And gradually in the writing, rewriting this book, I feel it's an extraordinary thing to be 81 that I've kind of come into my fullness. (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful. I think it takes that long, doesn't it? There are so many times when I could have given up. I could have moved sideways, if you like. Mm -hmm. Like teaching in Western Canada is rather a different thing to teaching in England. And they're very, very much more concerned than in English straight teaching about people's social well-being. (laughs) And doing particularly with these residential workshops, I had situations thrown at me that were way beyond my capacities. Just to give you one example, in Vancouver, I knew a couple, he a lawyer, both of them from South Africa, she a psychiatrist, and I didn't know them well. Then he he just went to the bank on foot and he was mowed down by a car, a car that crashed on the pavement. And he was in a coma for many months. And when he came out of the coma, like you sometimes see in films. He was a different person. Mm -hmm. He'd lost the restraint that we civilized people have. So he, all his emotions, like if he fancied your breast, he would grab it or (laughs) he would cry and he would laugh just without any constraint. And he was in a really bad way and he also couldn't talk very well. But anyway, I used to see him walking, holding onto his wife's arm. Months went by and I would always say, how are you? And then After about six months come the spring, when he was still in this state, I met them and she, who did the talking, said, he's going to do some creative writing. And I said, oh, that's a very good idea. And they said, yes, he wants to write about what happened in the lead up. He can't remember it and everything. And so I said, well, you know, have you got the right sort of person to teach him? And she said, oh, well, we're booked into your workshop on the island. And I said, well, no, no, you can't do that, you know, because I'm not qualified in any way. But I think I could, you know, through the university, put you in touch with writing therapists or something. No, 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 he said, pointing at me, looking at my breast. No, 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 you, I know you, I'm coming to your workshop. And she would say, we've booked in for the best room, we're coming. And, you know, I realised that I had no option, really, you know, that somehow I was being called to do it, but that it was very terrifying. Mm. So after things like that, I decided to do a counselling course in the evenings to understand the way groups work, really, and Mm. feel more able to do some of this kind of work, which was both very, very interesting. Like the whole experience was so interesting. It taught me so much about writing therapy that I wanted to move in that direction Mm -hmm. from the point of view of earning a living while my writing was going so slowly. So I could have moved sideways. It would have been so easy after that, you know, to have just said, Mm -hmm. okay, Christine, just go and be a therapeutic writer. And indeed, when I was back in England at Sussex University, I trained others to, to be therapeutic writers. I couldn't have done it without that the joint things, both counselling, qualifications Mm -hmm. and being a writer. But I couldn't turn completely to it myself as a full-time thing because 
there was something in me that said, you have to write, you have to write, you have to write. I've been reading A Key to Lockout Cougars. And for me, the natural world is one of the big characters of that story and comes across very vividly. It reminded me of Cormac McCarthy in the way your natural world lives. Discuss. Yes, (laughs) discuss. (laughs) I made my central, if you call him my central male character, Giles, English, because Mm. I wanted to try and help an English reader to make a transition into this world of this book by seeing someone who wasn't a person who was comfortable in the countryside, you know, and didn't even choose to be there. I mean, there are always going to be some people who feel I give anything to have that opportunity, you know, to live like that. And it's difficult to explain because it's both a very modern place, but also you feel you're going back in time to a, a more natural life. And certain things strike me, which is one, that when I'd been there the first time and I was living at the Institute, but I was writing, I was staying on to write there. And I thought at night in the forest, you used a torch, which of course they call a flashlight. But after a month, I was using my torch and I came across an islander who knew me and he said to me, what are you doing with a flashlight? And I said, well, it's dark, I'm using a flashlight. And he said, Christine, put away your flashlight now. You've been here a month. And I was really offended. You know, I went on muttering what ridiculous thing to say. I thought I'd always use a flashlight. But, I mean, it really shocked me that anyone could say to me, you know, that you don't need a flashlight. So this is years later. I was walking in the woods at night without a flashlight using the moon. And it must have been autumn. And I could hear the music that was made by my feet on the dry leaves. I suddenly hear that it was music. So it transforms you. I mean, Mm. my partner of the time only had an outhouse. And an outhouse meant that at night, I didn't even bother to go to the outhouse. Perhaps I shouldn't say this. But we just went out and the grass was always wet in the winter. And we went out in our wellies, you know, and and just peed. And the thing is that because of that, I was so conscious of the moon. It made a huge difference. You would trip, you know, if there's no moon. So you knew exactly where the moon was in the sky and what Mm. the cycle was. And the moon was my friend. Mm. And coming back, sometimes I think with anguish, I haven't looked at the moon for six months. So it changes you. And I wanted to try and get across the magic of that. And yet the people in the novel were all quite crabby, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Um, particularly, you know, because I captured this woman at a time when the idealism that had caused her to leave England had really failed her. And it's a crisis of faith that she has about the validity of her choice. I have to say quickly, that was never my experience because the woman in, in the novel did what I didn't have the courage to do, which is that I always kept my foot into camps and I taught in Vancouver. Mm. I never said, right, for 10 years, this is my home. I lose everything, but it's for this. It perhaps what I would have loved to do, but I wasn't, I was more cautious as a person. Mm. 
But she gave up everything. And the novel takes her crisis of faith, which is why she's so crabby. And how in meeting Giles and the whole experience of Giles, she comes to validate their way of life. Hmm. And I suppose I wrote it when I came back to England, when I had to ask myself those questions. You know, if you talk to people about that kind of life here, and they've got mortgages to pay off and life to get on with, it feels sometimes very effervescent. What was it? Mm. And I had to really ask myself that question. Are we dreamers there? Were we dreamers? I mean, in some ways, it took a topic as pressing as the topic in my latest novel, Bye Bye Apartheid Row, because it took global warming, it took ecology, and Mm -hmm. those people trying against all the odds to live a life in affinity with, with the natural world. What was that? What is it? Does it have any substance? And that's really in the face of English rationalism, I was trying to look back on Right. As we're talking about <laughs> a key to lock out cougars, do you like Giles? <laughs> well, my favourite character there is Rig. Me too. Without any... I think I felt not that I liked him and I hated what he did, but I felt that I knew people like that. Mm. I think in a way, mm. probably I gave him the worst characteristics of that careerism and the lack of putting that before any moral values. So I can't say I liked him, but he was also a familiar part of myself, yeah. as all characters are, if you like. So by the same token, Rig Torson is a part of yourself then? Well, I like to think so. Maybe not so familiar as Giles, mm-hmm. but maybe not so familiar. But I did feel a huge affection for him. Yeah, I'm just going to say something that I feel I haven't said, but I just wanted to say why I've called Bye Bye Apartheid Road that title. Can I do that? I'd love to know, yeah. Mm. We'd love to know. Because Colin McCann in Apirogen has this quote, and I saw it, and I don't know whether it's true or not, but I saw it as what had been scrawled, graffiti, on a wall where a road which Palestinians have to use, they can't go on the faster road for, quote, security reason. So this is the part where a road like often a detour they had to take, join the main road. And these Palestinian kids had written up bye-bye apartheid road when they were back on the main road for everyone. (laughs) And I think I loved it because there's a sort of insouciance in it, a sort of cheek and a sort of hope. Or for me, Mm. in making it the title, there's a sort of hope. But there's also a sort of cheek about it. I love it that it's bye-bye and not goodbye. You You are a natural storyteller, so I've drifted deeply into your stories and hearing you speak and totally forgotten what I was going to say, except that I've never written a novel and I'm afraid I haven't read the island novel, but I've always been fascinated by this idea of the development of a story and of characters and how different authors talk about this. And some say the book writes itself or you go shopping and you come back and another character's popped up. So what's your experience of that? Do, do you write the novel or does the novel write you? Hmm. Well, 
First of all, I think that there are the things that you know are going on with your conscious mind mm. and a whole lot of other things, maybe even a basket full of other things that you don't know are going on. And somehow in some miraculous way, if you're lucky, they combine. So they've all had such different genesis, really. But I think with the house husband, one of the unconscious reasons so I thought that I wanted to write about something that I sort of saw happening, which was that I saw couples where the woman was becoming the bigger earner mm -hmm. and how that affected the couple and the power struggle. So I wanted to sort of turn that situation of a man having a little woman at home <laughs> and being able to work in the workplace and come home and have her and see how it worked the other way. Mm. But the unconscious strange thing was that I was already preparing to go to Canada. And I am someone who's always attached to place. Before I found the island, I was very, very attached to Hampstead Heath, where I walked endlessly. And I could feel that I was going to detach. And whereas some people might have taken photos of the heath and taken an album out with, I think I found a way to write a book which was set on the heath through all the seasons, through a whole year. Mm -hmm. And my two characters, the house husband, whose wife's doing so well, and who is a house husband not by choice, as many men are, of course, but who was actually tricked into it and not feeling good about himself, meets another sort of stray who's a young woman whose parents are very successful and she herself feels like a sort of dropout and, and a failure. And both of them have a family situation where there's disapproval of this relationship. I put them together and then had them meet all over the heath in all my favourite places mm. <laughs> through all the year. And so in a way, I think it enabled me to go to Canada because I took with me not an album, but my book and internalised it. I would never have known that. So what comes first? You know, I always say to young writers and start-off writers that when you think of starting a book, of course, there are some books that have to be very well and very tightly plotted, crime mm -hmm. or genre books. Mm -hmm. But for the general fiction, I would say that what happens is, this is the best I can answer you, Adrian, that it's like mm -hmm. you have a vague idea or I have an idea of a journey that I want to go on. And maybe that's often a cluster of ideas or a cluster of ideas and feelings I'm rubbing against, something I want to resolve or understand more. Mm -hmm. And so that's like the beginning of the journey. And I think like any journey, like if I was going to go to France and take a car now, if I didn't know where I was going, it would be rather hard. You'd get to France and what would you do? So I think I probably have a sort of sense of the arc of the story, but not too tight. Mm -hmm. And then just like any journey, it then gets affected by what I'm living through, what the weather's like. I might want to stop off here a week. I might want to do this there. So there's a sort of both an open-endedness about it and some sense of perhaps the end or perhaps the R, more like music, I'd say, really. And again, this is just like any writer, it's the truth, is that you write the first draft, whether you know it or not, for yourself to find out what the story is. And you often don't know. And then 
you write the second, third, fourth, and fifth drafts for the reader. Once you understand the story, to bring it out more, to put in what's not there, to cut out what you didn't need except you need to find it for yourself. So I think a certain point in the story informs you. It's very difficult to answer because they are so related, the one part with the other. So, for example, with Joining the Grown Ups, it's about a girl whose mother became gay, left the family, and the father takes the children to Canada, surprise, surprise. And years later, the father didn't really encourage the children to see the mother. And the story takes place when the girl, Josie, is dropping out of university, confused about her own sexuality, and gets in touch with her mother, who runs a literary agency, and persuades her mother to let her come over and work for her for the summer. Now, I wrote the first bit, Josie's bit, and then I wanted to write the mother's part. But at that time, in my limited world, I actually didn't really know any gay women well enough to feel that I could write that part. And I also felt that gay women might say that I was writing something, appropriating something that they, you know, Hmm. I, I didn't know that I could do it well enough. So I had this brainwave that I could get a fellow agent, a male agent in the agency to tell Josie the story of her mother. And that way, he wouldn't know, being a white male, any more about what it was like to be a lesbian woman than I would. So he'd all the time have to guess. But that worked so well that then I thought, well, he's telling this brilliant and convincing story about Joseph's mother, but he's not understanding his own mess his own place in the agency. So he's being brilliant about someone else, but hopeless about himself. And isn't that so often true of us? So then I thought, oh, right, well, then someone else could tell his story. And so out of the difficulty of what was I going to do about the mother's story, I found the technique for the novel, which is basically that four people tell each other's story. So the technique sometimes flows an answer to the very questions you have, if you see what I mean. That's organic, isn't it? I mean, if I decided before, Mm. oh, right, I'm going to write a novel where four people, it would have been very different Mm. to a technique that evolves. And the way these things happen depends upon a writer's intense listening to the messages of the novel and what it wants to tell you. Yeah. And as far as the last novel goes, Bye Bye, Apartheid Road, I mean, one thing was to do with an increasing interest in my Jewish roots. And I think like a lot of Anglo-Jews, particular kind, I don't know about you, Adrian, but I've met a lot who, like me, really were so adapted in a way and integrated that it was only in middle age that I began to be really fascinated by my Jewish history, by my Jewish side. And so part of that and family stories came into it. But the other aspect of it was I felt that I couldn't understand the perspective of, for example, a settler, the extreme positions. Mm. And I felt I wanted to therefore put myself 
in that place. I kept wondering, well, how can people in Israel not see that to some extent they're doing to others what has been done to them, not making the link? Mm. Well, the only way seemed to me to answer this thing that had bothered me and bothered me and bothered me would be to become an Israeli. So partly these things come out of your own questions. And then as the book begins to take place and the voice comes, I think the book helps you along if you work in tandem with it. You mentioned your Jewishness becoming, I guess, culturally aware of your background. And I heard at the start of this chat, you mentioned the Holocaust and your studies or your writings or your teachings about the Holocaust. Can you speak to that? I was in Canada in the 90s, and I went to a modernist film, if you like, set in Germany. It was a documentary looking at how the Holocaust is remembered in the villages in Germany. Mm -hmm. And I was so shocked by the number of people in Germany then, in the 90s, and we're looking 30 years ago now, who denied its importance. Some denied it happened, Mm. but so many trivialized it. And I was just so shocked that I came out of the film and I thought, what can I do to bear witness? And the first thing I did was put my Jewish father's name, Cohen, back into my name. (laughs) And I think that was the beginning of feeling you know, you are Jewish as well as English, and this counts and has to count. I want to be one of those who bears witness to that. Mm. What I'd love to know is what would you tell your younger self that you know now? Could you tap Christine on the shoulder when she was 10 or 15 or choose any time you like and say, here's what you need to know, girl? Well, I suppose they're just banal truisms. I mean, I would say, you're okay. Trust yourself and your instincts. I would say the things you really want to happen in your life, they will come if you wait and you're patient. And I would say, don't beat yourself up. You're okay. Brilliant. That's the perfect note to draw this conversation to a close. Do you think? I want to say thank you very much for asking such interesting questions and causing me to think about my creativity. Well, thank you for even more interesting answers. (laughs) And I think I want to say one more thing, which is because of the slant about ageing in your podcast, in your title to it. And can I say something about writing and being 81 to finish? Please, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Sometimes I think it's brilliant that I am still writing and I do still feel that I have juice and that... Some of my friends, um, when they stop work, they're nothing to do or they talk about holidays (laughs) and the horror of how things are going, you know, in the world and so on and so forth. But they don't have something central, which is like, you know, a light, a candle, really, something central, which is such a passion. So I feel very, very grateful for that. You know, of course, it has limitations. It means giving up certain things. No, no, I have to be home. I still have to write in the morning. But I'm also very grateful. And I think that's helped me 
keep young in my mind and interested in the world and things like that. And some things are hard as a writer when you age. Like when I was very young, when I started to write, creativity was like a tap and you turned it on, it came (laughs) gushing out, you know. I mean, when I wrote my first novel, it was so gushing Mm -hmm. that when I was driving and I got to a red light, I would try and write down a few more sentences. I was a danger. The gush was so brilliant. You know, you only had to be by yourself and it came. Mm. And later on, certainly now, if I'm really creative, if I feel that I've really written something which is alive and passionate, I'm exhausted the next day. It's like going on, you know, going up to London. It exhausts me. And damn it, it's another three days before. So it, that creativity comes and goes and isn't so reliable. And I see that in the work of other older writers, you know, that mm. energy to really be transposed into another world and get it down on the page. And alongside that, you've got this distilled wisdom or, you know, or whatever you call it. You've got this broader sense. You've seen a lot of life. And you've edited a lot of books and a lot of drafts. So you've got options, like maybe too many almost. I mean, as a young writer, you can only see one way to write a story, or if you're lucky too. But later on, you've got those options. Mm. So there are great things and there are harder things. And like it's been like I've had a friend by my side, which is my creativity all my life through good and bad, thick and thin. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time. Thank you for all of the things you've told us. It's great having you on Creativity. Thank you, Christine, very much. Well, thank you for all your brilliant questions. was great wasn't it listening to Christine Mm. and what a remarkable life she has had and what interesting and in-depth subjects she has chosen to write about. I love the way she goes from being a businesswoman as she describes herself in those early London days and then morphs into a fully-fledged writer, lecturer, teacher and encourager of other writers. And I think the extreme courage, particularly in the current climate, to go in straight into that situation in the Middle East. But I'm also quite fascinated by the fact that in her spare time, she plays in a ukulele band, which is yes. <laughs> at far end of the the spectrum, intellectual and emotional spectrum as one can go. It's a very good ukulele band, though, by the way. You know them. Yes. I wish we could have played a track or two, but we we already covered that at the beginning of today's podcast, so we won't cover that ground again about copyright and so on.
Okay. And I think it's an interesting aspect of creativity that very often people involved in very intense work in intense situations do do something, you know, outside of that. How many musicians are also painters in their spare time, etc.? We mentioned the Rolling Stones at the start of the podcast. Uh-huh. I saw a series of documentaries called, I think, My Life as a Rolling Stone. Mm-hmm. Charlie Watts, the drummer, he had a habit of going on tour and every single hotel bedroom he ever stayed in, <laughs> he drew a picture of the bed. I see. Isn't that cool? It's mad, actually, but still. Yeah. <laughs> Each to his own. That's brilliant. Mm. And... Hugh Cornwell, who was lead singer with the Stranglers in the the period that I loved, loves cricket and listen to his guitar thrashing and his great voice and then think of cricket, which is, for me, one of the most boring occupations I can imagine. But he loves it. Mm. Einstein, violin. Got to think some more now. Um, I can't on the off chance, but that might be quite a nice occupation for our listeners in the next... Yeah, if you've got some thoughts, please tell us about people who are creative with some other line or people who are, for example, like Einstein's scientific, but who also manage to be creative in a very different field. Uh Yeah, interesting. Tell us more. Keeping the old brain functions going, which I I suppose is it, isn't it? Keeping it active and keeping it inquiring and creative in itself and curious and... Curious is a really good description of people who manage to continue to be creative. They're looking around the world and wondering Mm. pretty well all the time. And we had a guest recently called Mark Rimmel who described how he goes out and walks around the city of Budapest just looking at stuff and seeing things and using that to feed his creativity. 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 Same thing. Same thing. Same thing. So I'm very lucky living in Brighton because, for those who don't know it, it's on the south coast in England, and it's an absolute madhouse. And you can sit on the seafront and just watch the world go by. And I often think now, who is he and where is he going? Where has he been? And all the dogs that come crossing backwards and forwards and the lives that, that you know, people have come out of their flats. It's a very densely populated area. They're walking along that seafront and I, I get an image of, you know, what's their flat like? Where is it? They've come out of it. They're walking around. They'll go back into it and into their lives somehow. Mm. If that makes any sense, I think it's utterly fascinating. People watching. And a lot of my favourite cities have that element. Lisbon was the same. You could sit in Lisbon with a cup of coffee and just watch. And it all happens right in front of you. And it feeds your creativity. Bongs appear and poems appear and so on and so on. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Well, speaking of songs appearing, we're going to play out with a tune which was approved by the person who wrote it and is performing it. This is James Bragg on Souterrain Sounds and... It's from his album Red Cloud, and the track is called Going Back. And in it, James references an island, so it seems like a good idea because it ties back with Christine's book A Key to Lockout Cougars, which is set on an island in British Columbia, Canada. Mm -hmm. 
So there you are, a full circle in some ways. Thanks very much to James and to the record supremo old man Thompson of Souterrain Sounds. And we should point out that James has also just released a new album called Lost Love's Wake, and it's on Wabi Sabi Records. So if you like what James is doing on Red Cloud, really check out Lost Love's Wake as well. I certainly will. Thanks, James. Yeah, thanks, James. And thanks, Christine, for a very, very engaging session. Yes, thank you, Christine, very much. And to everybody who's listening as well, thank you. Bye from me. And it's bye from him. <laughs> Going back to where the mountains ring Going back to meet the tide To feel the warm thoughts of spring I'm going back to the island The sounds around me and sounds in the sky But I lost the way to meet your eyes There is somewhere where we won't feel so dry Where we can flow and swim with the tide Podcast.